You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is episode 80 of season three, episode 145 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. It is June 18th, 2021. Also Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Is today Juneteenth? I don't know. I know that Juneteenth was just made into a federal holiday, and I keep hearing about it, and I keep seeing headlines that Juneteenth is now a holiday, and What little I caught on the TV at Truck City here in Greeley when I dropped off my truck for some diagnostics. It's been acting up this week. I have a sinking suspicion that I'm not for Juneteenth. I have this just, I don't know what you call it, a hunch maybe, that I'm not on board with Juneteenth because the Democrats are pushing it. And the people that were being interviewed on this little news segment we're talking all about abolitionism and slavery and critical race theory in a roundabout way and systemic racism. And even when President Biden signed this bill into law stating that Juneteenth is now a federal holiday, he made a point to tell us all that we are a racist country. At least the white people here are all racist. So thank you for that. That's great. That sounds like a day worth celebrating to me that we're all racists and we should just put on sackcloth and ashes forevermore because some white people once upon a time were awful and ugly or some white people still somewhere are awful and ugly sometimes. Well, I'm sorry. I think that's an inherently racist proposition and I am not on board with that. I am not a racist person or if I am, then everybody is. I am of the opinion of the conviction firm and resolute that we are all one race. You have different ethnicities, obviously. There are different tribes of people from all over the earth, but we are one race. I'm from Scots Irish stock on my mom's side. I'm from Swiss stock on my dad's side. But any way you slice it, those tribes of humanity are all from the same root. We all descend from Adam and from Noah and their sons. But enough about that. I want to talk about my 13-year-old son's summer reading project. That is actually the subject of today's podcast. And just to give you a little bit of a backstory, my 13-year-old son reads voraciously. Josiah is almost 14. He'll be 14 the end of next month. But he has in the past year read a ridiculous number of books. He's read completely a lot of books that are considered classics on his own, not because they were part of his school curriculum, but just because he likes to read. He enjoys reading. He eats up the information, soaks it in, and he likes talking about what he reads. So I know he's learning things. He's not just looking at the page and flipping through them for a kind of prestige thing. He enjoys and gets something out of reading. And I love to see that. I'm obviously very much a reader. And I love to see that he's getting into reading. And 
So this project that I just introduced him to last night while I was working on laundry, I didn't throw this to him because he needs to be reading more. It's more of a question of what is he reading. And it's not that I have a concern with what he's reading otherwise, but I believe that the two books I just threw in his lap last night are going to benefit him. I believe that as a father, I have a responsibility to be engaged and involved in my son learning the things that he needs to know in order to be a man, in order to be functional, in order to be responsible, in order to be competent, in order to be confident. He needs some guidance from his father, and that'll be maybe less and less the case the older that he gets, or maybe he'll always need a dad in his life as long as I'm here on earth. Anyway, you slice it. The two books that I gave him that I want him to read before the close of the summer are Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And also the follow-up book, the sequel to that one, The Dichotomy of Leadership, Balancing the Challenges of Extreme Ownership to Lead and Win by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. I read these two books in the past year or so, year or two. I don't remember exactly how long it's been at this point, but I read these two books and got a lot out of them. I found these to be very useful books, very helpful books in thinking about leadership in very practical terms. I like the illustrations that they give in the books from their time in the SEALs and also from their time in their consulting firm. They started up a company after they got out of the SEAL teams, and now they go around and they talk to businesses, and they help with problems. You have a problem in your organization, so does everybody, but you have a problem in particular that's unique to your organization, unique to your personality, unique to your culture, and we're going to talk with you about it. We're going to talk with your people about it. We're going to assess the situation, and then we're going to give you some practical feedback on what you're doing that's not working, how are you sabotaging yourself, how are you getting in your own way and getting between yourself and success. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies and it can help to bring in outside perspective to tell us this is what you could do to turn this around. It's not going in the right direction or it's going in the right direction but it's just really taken a long time to get there and you can pick up the pace if you streamline, if you push harder here, if you back off of this thing that you're trying to do that's a distraction actually from your main goal. Focus up, refine your messaging, refine your approach, be more disciplined, be more respectful of the people that you're working with, be more willing to maybe enforce your commands and have repercussions when your orders are clear and they're not followed. All those kinds of things are in here. And so I told my son last night, I said, hey, it's not that you're not reading enough, you're reading a lot. I get it. I want you to read these two books before the end of the summer. And after you read the first one, I want at least a two-page essay from you on what you learned, what did you get out of it, what did you personally come away realizing you needed to improve on, or what ideas did you get from this book that are practical in nature, that are going to help you moving forward, and how are you going to implement those ideas. We'll go through your two-page essay, and we will look at the way you're communicating about these things, 
how you're organizing the information. Are you being clear? Are you being direct? And we're going to turn that into an opportunity for you to become a better writer, become a more confident writer, become a better communicator. And we're going to talk back and forth about these books because I've read these books. I think these are really worthwhile. And once you've done that with the first book and we've gotten through the writing and revision and editing process, then we'll move on to the second book. So don't take your time on getting through the first book because the writing, editing, rewriting thing is a big part of this because you need to be a more confident writer. You need to learn to be able to communicate these ideas. It's one thing to read, but you have to make sure you're able to communicate what it is that you're reading and metabolize that information. You know, imagine you were eating food and it's highly nutritious food, but your body's just throwing it back up again. It doesn't like it. It's reacting allergically to it. It's not using that nutrient, that mineral and vitamin and protein-rich food to build a stronger body. It's just getting rid of it as quickly as it's coming in. Well, you're going to be in trouble. So we got to make sure we're metabolizing the information. You can do that by writing it out and then looking honestly and objectively at your writing to say, is this clear? Is this as clear as it could be? Am I being efficient and economical with my words? And once we get done with the first, we'll move on to the second. And what the second one is really about, the first one I'll, I'll tell you in a minute, but the second one is about the too extreme, extreme ownership that people who read the first book by Jocko and Leif took. So you get management that reads the first book and they say, wow, that's really good and that's really great and I'm going to be taking extreme ownership over everything. Everything that's around me, I'm just extreme ownership all the time, only, ever, always. And they got themselves into trouble because they didn't balance that call for taking ownership of things or they didn't really fully understand and grasp the concept. So it needed to be refined and re-explained and so Jocko and Leif, they write a follow-up book to say, well, hey, wait a second. Okay, so extreme ownership doesn't always mean you jump in and take over and you don't let the people under you and around you make decisions. If you're always jumping in and taking over, you're always asking for updates all the time over and over and over and over and over again, you might be disempowering the people that are around you and that are under you in the organization from taking ownership where they need to. So how do you take ownership in a way that helps the people around you to take ownership as well? You don't want to enable bad behavior. You also don't want to drive out and demoralize people that are high performers that are trying to take responsibility for their piece of the project, their piece of this endeavor, this business venture, whatever it is. You want to learn how to work as a team because that's leadership. If you're only ever the one always taking ownership, then why do you need an organization, right? Why do you need people around you? You could just do that on your own, but that's not leadership. You need to influence and affect the people around you in a positive way, whether you're officially in authority over them or you're not. If you're officially in authority over them, then the dynamics change a little bit. But even when you are, how much are you in authority over? Are you in absolute authority over those people? Or do you sometimes need to use soft influence and the power of suggestion and the power of your own example to 
lead and guide and direct the people that you're working with. All of that is here, right? All of it's here. But extreme ownership, you know, the big idea here is that when you're in a situation, you take responsibility for what is in your power to affect. And that involves prioritizing, yes. That involves figuring out what the goal needs to be, yes. But you don't shy away from responsibility. You don't look for ways to blame shift, for instance, if there's a mistake that's been made, if it's a big mess. You don't look for ways to throw that onto somebody else. That's not good leadership. That doesn't earn the respect of your peers, your superiors, or your subordinates. You don't blame shift. You own it. You know what? I could have handled that better. I should have handled that better. If I would have handled it this way, then we could have totally prevented this from happening the way that it did. We could have absolutely taken advantage of this opportunity that we have that we just missed. That was on me moving forward. Here's what I'm going to do differently, right? That's taking ownership, extreme ownership, right? You need to have a communication with your subordinates that is clear and direct. Here are my expectations. Here's what I need from you. And then also listen, you need to take ownership of the fact that they have information that needs to be transmitted to you. And you need to listen. You need to be able to be a good leader and to listen to the feedback from your team. Up the chain, you've got to take ownership of the fact, especially if you've got people under you and around you that are depending on the folks commanding and overseeing you to make the good in, the good decision, they need good intel. And so you've got to take ownership of the fact that your superiors might not have all the information they need to make a good decision. And respectfully, you're going to go and you're going to take ownership of the fact that they need that intel. They need that information. If they're not getting it anywhere else to make a good decision for the sake of your team, you're going to go and you're going to have that conversation. You're going to say, hey, here's what it is. Here's what's going on. Did you know this additional piece of information? I have these concerns. Here's what we need to factor into our decision here. Has that been factored in? How should we mitigate this thing? Or could we go about this in a different way to where we don't run the risks that we're not mitigating, right? All of that's extreme ownership. But again, the follow-up, the dichotomy of leadership is basically all about how do you balance the need to be aggressive, to have a default position of aggression in a good way, in a good sense? How do you balance that with the need to sometimes hang back, right? Sometimes if you're doing all the work, you're depriving the people around you from being able to take a stake in it, being able to take ownership of their piece of it. You're enabling bad behavior sometimes. Sometimes they don't want to take ownership, and you taking ownership all the time is giving them an out, and they can just say, well, he was handling it, right? Well, no, you got to be holistic about this. you got to be balanced about this. You can go too extreme, too far, to the point that you run the risk of sabotaging yourself in a different way. Too much passivity, bad. Passivity is always bad. But waiting is not bad, always. Being patient is not bad, always. So you gotta know when to balance things. When is you waiting being passive and a bad thing? When is you waiting patience and it's a good thing? When is you jumping in, taking ownership of something, you being a leader? And when is you jumping in and taking ownership of something, actually you being a control freak or a micromanager or whatever? 
all of that and more is here. And I think it's worth reading. I think it's worth listening to. It's a really clearly written, very direct, plain language kind of a book. So that's my son's summer reading program. And I think that's the kind of stuff we should have our young men in the making reading. Have them reading something that's going to get their blood pumping, that's going to get them inspired, that's going to help them to catch a vision of how to be a good man, right? I want my boys reading the Bible. I want them reading history. I want them reading fantasy so they have an imagination, so they learn to be creative. I want them reading science fiction so that they're curious about what the future could hold. I want them reading books about great men so that they see that great men are not always great. Sometimes great men come from humble beginnings. Sometimes they come from lowly beginnings. Sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes they have setbacks. And how do they handle those setbacks? And what can you learn from them doing things fantastic and exceptional and great? And what can you learn from when they make a mistake, when they get ahead of themselves, when they get conceited, when they get set up to fail, when they have jealous backstabbers that are trying to sabotage them, cut the feet out from under them? I want my sons to learn books about strategy and about tactics and about how to be responsible, how to be wise. I want them learning about how to be a good man. And so I would recommend these two books toward that end. If your sons are of an age, they're in their teenage years, this might be just what the doctor ordered. If you have sons that are not yet teenagers and you're looking for books to give your sons when they come to a certain age, start building that reading list now so that when they're of an age, you can throw this in front of them and say, hey, I read this book, right? That's what I was able to sell to my oldest son as is I read these two books and I'm reading another book right now, actually by Jocko Willink. It's been a year or two, maybe more, since I read his first two books that he wrote with Leif Babin, co-wrote with Leif Babin. But I just decided here recently to pick up Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual by Jocko Willink. I think it's his newest book, his most recent one. It's on Audible because I also subscribe to the podcast. And every now and then it's one of a dozen or two dozen podcasts that I listen to. And I was listening this past week, just happened to see that the latest episode from the Jocko podcast on Apple Podcasts was about... B.H. Liddell Hart's strategy, The Indirect Approach. Well, hey, I've read that book. I read that one too, right? I read Hart's strategy, The Indirect Approach, and I found it interesting. And so it'd be interesting to hear the author of some other books that I've read talking about a book that I've read. And so I tuned in, and it was a really good discussion. It was a really interesting discussion. If you like podcasts, check out Jocko's podcast. He likes to talk about military and history and strategy and all the same kinds of things that he talks about in his books. He's got Leif Babbitt on there. He's got other veterans, other former SEALs that come on there, other service members, other veterans from other branches he has on there, and they talk about what is interesting to the military, what is interesting to the veteran class. But I'm listening to them discussing strategy, the indirect approach. And one thing that I found really interesting is that they were contrasting B.H. Liddell Hart's 
approach to strategy. And Clausewitz. Clausewitz was also a very influential writer on strategy. And as they put it, and having studied both of these guys in the military so that they could be commanders of SEAL teams, having studied both of them and tried to put their lessons, their maxims into practice in high-stakes, life-or-death situations, pass-or-fail, win-or-die situations, it's very practical to them. It's not abstract. It's not, am I going to become a millionaire? Is my business going to you know, rise to the top of its sector? Am I going to corner the market? It's not that kind of stuff for them alone. It is that because now that's their post-military career occupation. They have a business in which they do the consulting thing. But for them, it's also actually military strategy, right? They actually had to put these maxims into practice and to test them and to see how far does this go? How far is this true? And does you knowing this make you more effective as a commander? Does it make you more effective as a leader? Does it make you safer when you're leading men in battle or on a mission? So they're talking about it and they're talking about back and forth how B.H. Liddell Hart really goes after Clausewitz, really lights into him and some of his maxims that even if it's not Clausewitz's fault, there's a lot of folks that dogmatically cling to the principles of strategy that Clausewitz wrote and have gotten a lot of people killed as a result because they didn't balance it. It was always aggression, always attack, 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 be stubborn, do it harder, right? If it didn't work, do it again, harder this time, right? With more feeling, once more with feeling. And B.H. And Liddell Hart says, no, that's nonsense sometimes. And he has seen up close and personal in World War I, Hart has tens of thousands of men killed in single battles because the commanders, the generals, were disciples of Clausewitz, and they just said, okay, once more over the top, again, charge that machine gun nest, again, harder this time. You didn't do it right the first time. Do it again, harder. You're not doing hard enough. What? Mustard gas? <laughs> do it again. Chemical warfare? Do it again, right? And Hart looks at that, looks at the futility, at the massive cost in blood and treasure and time, that following Clausewitz dogmatically meant. And he says, no, right? If you're going to try to win battles, maybe pay attention to William Tecumseh Sherman. Maybe sometimes you should look at where the enemy doesn't have their defenses up instead of trying to attack them face-to-face, head-on. Maybe you come around and you flank them. Maybe you attack their supply lines. Maybe you make war against their economic wherewithal, which keeps their armies in the field. Maybe you don't have to defeat their army. You have to defeat the support structure that props up their army. And then their army is going to surrender to you. That might not be exciting based on the old view of making war and waging battles. But if that what if that's what wins both the war and the subsequent peace better then why would you not want that? Sherman's approach in the Civil War, the American Civil War, was highly effective. 
Sherman was brilliant by all counts. Brilliant. He was hated by the South because he was so effective. Hey, that's cheating. You can't do that. You can't attack our supply lines. You can't attack our food supply. You can't attack our infrastructure. You can't do that. You're supposed to attack our armies. We're all dug in and defended. We're, we're waiting for you. That's rude to not keep an appointment. We were expecting you to attack our armies. And then you go and burn cities. You go and destroy crops. You go and destroy factories and foundries. Well, that's not fair. Well, not fair? Says who? Who says that's not fair? That was Sherman's response. Who says that's not fair? It's not fair to have men bleeding and dying and suffering. Their widows and orphans left destitute without them because the conflict drags on and on and on and on. It's good that war is hell, Sherman says. Otherwise, we would like it too much. So he recognizes and embraces the fact that war is hell. And then he adopts a strategy to bring that war to a successful conclusion, to a desirable outcome as quickly as possible. That's actually the most merciful thing you can do when you find yourself in a war. You don't come up with rules of engagement that tie your soldiers and Marines' hands behind their backs to where you've got to be dead before you can shoot back at an enemy that attacks you. You know what? If you've got to have rules of engagement which say the enemy has to shoot at you first before you can shoot back, then kiss victory goodbye. You cannot win a war that way. You cannot win that way. And if you can't win, then you shouldn't be fighting. You shouldn't start a fight you don't intend to win or that you can't win. And if the rules you're going to set for yourself or the rules somebody else is going to set for you are going to prevent you by default from winning, then don't go. Don't fight. We don't fight to lose. We fight to win. That's the lesson from Sherman. That's the lesson from B.H. Liddell Hart. And maybe that would have been the lesson from Clausewitz had he not died before he finished his book. His widow, apparently, assembled his notes and completed all but the first three chapters of his book on strategy. And so we don't know. And that's something else interesting that the Jocko podcast discussed was that we don't know how these ideas would have matured and developed had Clausewitz had an opportunity to refine them and finish them before an untimely demise intervened. I'm going to read for you Proverbs 24, verses 3 to 7. And we'll close with a little bit of analysis on those verses because it ties in very neatly with Jocko Willink's advice here and with B.H. Liddellhart and Clausewitz and all the rest. William Tecumseh Sherman, Ulysses Grant. Proverbs 24, verses 3 to 7 says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate he does not open his mouth. So here we've got this proverb, and I love Proverbs 24. Further on down, 
It says if you faint in the day of adversity, this is verse 10, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? I love that, right? I love that passage. That, to me, verses 10 through 12, is what comes to mind when I think about the issue of abortion in our day. That's why I'm so passionate and fired up about abortion. That's why I'm so pro-life. Is because we have to speak up for those who are being led away to the slaughter. We have to speak up for those who are being entrapped and destroyed by wicked men. We have to speak up on their behalf. God knows. God sees. And he will not hold us faultless or innocent if we could have intervened and we didn't. But you get this selection of verses, verses 3 through 7. By wisdom a house is built. What does that tell me? That tells me that building houses is a good thing. By understanding it is established. You know what that tells me? That tells me establishing your house is a good thing. Wisdom and understanding are helpful to that end, and that end is a good end. Building a house and establishing it are good things to do. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Well, that tells me it's good to build a house and establish it and also put nice things in your house. Put good things in your house. Don't make them into idols. Don't become materialistic. But also, let's not buy into this vow of poverty, anti-materialism, wherein we are anti-human productivity and flourishing. Build a house. Fill it with good things. Make sure your house is established by wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And also, by extension, if you want to be able to build, establish, and fill a house with good things, you need to get wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Pursue those things relentlessly. A wise man is full of strength, verse 5 says, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. A wise man is full of strength. That's not just talking about physical strength. But why not also physical strength? If you're wise, you're going to work out. Build up your body. You're going to build up your mind. You're going to read. You're going to study. You're going to discipline yourself. You're going to write. You're going to practice communicating. You're going to refine your communication techniques. You're going to learn how to be a good leader. You're going to learn how to be self-disciplined. You're going to learn how to be competent at what you do. You're going to constantly refine your process all the time. Take in new information. Take in critical feedback. Make use of every piece of feedback. Is that true? Okay, well, let's work on that. A man of knowledge enhances his might. You look for ways to supplement your strength, to augment your strength, so that you're able to do these things, so that you're able to build your house, establish it, fill it with good things. By wise guidance, you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So again, you know, this is my 13-year-old son's summer reading project, reading these books by former Navy SEALs, and being able to say, hey, these guys are the cream of the crop. In terms of military, United States military is the most feared, competent, lethal fighting force on the planet. Within the United States military, the U.S. Navy SEALs are among the most elite of the elite, the most feared, lethal, competent fighting force on the planet. 
Among the Navy SEALs, these two guys have led and commanded SEAL teams. And now they're not done yet. They got out of the teams, and now they go around talking with businesses and management and corporations and giving advice and talking through problems. Hey, you've got a problem here. How do we help you solve it? How do we help you figure that out? Get your arms around it, right? These guys know a thing or two. Get knowledge, get understanding, get wisdom from these guys. Let's make sure you got it. I want you to write it out. I want to read what you wrote. I want to take a look at it. I want us to see, is your progress along the lines of leadership, self-discipline, wisdom, understanding, humility, confidence, all of these things, is your progress on track? And how can I help you? How can I take extreme ownership? Not to be cliche, but how do you take ownership as a father for the ways in which your sons need their strength to be augmented, supplemented, enhanced? How do you do that? How do you help them to do that? Well, part of it is you do it yourself. You show them an example. You set that example. Part of it is you guide them through how to get that ingrained in their process as well. Wisdom is too high for a fool in the gate. He does not open his mouth. That's not what we want. Proverbs does this constantly back and forth. Here's what a wise man does. Here's what a fool does. Be the wise man. Don't be the fool. Ecclesiastes will talk about how the same event happens to us all. What's the point, right? Why get wisdom and knowledge if you're going to die just like the fool does, just like the simpleton does? What's the point? Well, the point is we live not in a vacuum, not for ourselves not unto ourselves. We're made for a purpose, on purpose, by God. We're here. We need to be about our Father's business. So that's what we're doing. That's the latest on that. I'd recommend you pick up these books so far, too. Jocko's Field Manual. I'm enjoying it. I'm not very far in, but check it out. Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual by Jocko Willink. Check out his two books, Extreme Ownership and The Dichotomy of Leadership. They're both really good. Uh, Check out his podcast if you like podcasts better. But I got to run. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Oh.